Hey everybody, Chris here. There's so much new stuff going on at the recoveryrevolution.online that I can't keep track of it all. So do me a favor, go to the recoveryrevolution.online and figure it out for yourselves. Thanks and enjoy the show. The Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast. The podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R, and SinceRightNow.com. With your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. Are we? Natasha. Hi, we're just sitting here enjoying seeing Natasha Silverbell. Natasha um, Silverbell. So, uh, I'm N- Jeff is now here with me. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Jeff. And Matt. Hello, Natasha. Hey, Matt. And uh, yeah, we're uh, we're ready if you are. Sure. All right. Um, so uh, I was just explaining to them that. Uh, well, I, I explained to you in, in the pre-call that um, you know the the new. Th- Revelation I had, I think last episode was really that this has become something where I really enjoy introducing basically friends that don't know each other to each other, Jeff and Matt, to these people that I encounter online. And uh, as I said to you in the pre-call, we don't have a lot of history online. We've spoken a couple times on the phone. Mm -hmm. And um, so this will be an introduction for me as well And, uh, and, and for the listeners. So... Um, just a bit of background, then I'll, I'll um, turn it over to someone else. Uh, <laughs> Natasha uh, is in recovery herself, and she's a recovery coach. As a, and you can correct me as I go or when I'm done. Yeah, um, great. In New York, and um, I I came across you. I was, I was looking. Uh, I realized one of the things lacking on the site was maybe a little professional, practical advice, and I, and I reached out to you just to, to talk about that uh, possibility of maybe contributing. Sure. Um, and uh, you're you're kind enough to, to agree to join us on the podcast. So uh, yeah. welcome, Natasha, and I'll let you amend or, or correct or add as you see fit from there. No, you did great. Okay. And I'm happy to to give back whenever I can, and I'm glad we could find a time to to all meet together. So thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, so I was. It was funny because we we you know we checked out the website, and um, I, I think it's interesting. I would love to hear all the credentials that you had because I was just like, oh my god, this this is the most credentialed woman in this space I've ever. And I don't even know what all these initials. No, we had no. That's we our tr- blind spot. That's our blind spot. Like, what is this? Is, she's like super professional. Professionalism is our blind spot. As Chris just said. So. so yeah, just I'd love to hear the journey of going from. I'm I'm a sober person now, and then getting into all this, then where do you even right. find this track to become this? You know, right? Well, thank you. Yeah, it is a, a interesting connection. Um, so I am certified as a recovery coach in New York City. It's called CARC, okay. and the process for that is, you know, you take a course and you have to get some, you know, understanding of um, what they call MAT, Medicaid Assisted Treatment. So mm-hmm. you want to be able to understand how to work with people who are on medications that are prescribed by psychiatrists. But to backtrack before all of the credentialing, mm. um, how, how does one go from being in the rooms yeah. where, I, where yes. I got sober was yeah. in the rooms of AA? Yeah. And that worked for me um, and transitioning into a professional person because mm-hmm. one of the traditions of AA is that you don't charge for, mm, for the 12 steps of right. taking people through that process, which I do have sponsees um, that I, of course, would never charge. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. just, that's just not how I operate. But there is a professional field. And it's interesting, over in Europe, there are many pathways to one's recovery. Mm-hmm. AA is but one of them. But in the United States, um, we are a little bit behind the game, if you will, um, in, in allowing other pathways to evolve without judgment. Mm-hmm. And so that was hard for me. Even I'll admit that. In, I had a couple years sober when I was really considering this. And um, I was in meetings. I was sponsoring five or six women at a time. And mm. I'm a divorced mother of three. So 
imagine, you know, my load and mm-hmm. still saying, no, this is what I want to do. I want to give back the gift that was so freely given to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we have but one requirement in AA, and that is to extend the hand back mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. And so that was great, but it is it does take a lot of time and dedication. And um, I had, there are amazing people in the rooms of AA, and they said, you know, Natasha, you're really good at helping others stay sober. You should do this professionally. And I said, well, I, you know, I have three kids. I, I don't know if I can go back to school and get my master's in social work and all those things. They said, no, no, there are other ways to do it. Get certified as a recovery coach, which I was hmm. like, what's that? Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> cheating on AA. You yeah. can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and were you resistant to another way as lots of people are in the rooms? I think, yeah, yeah you just sort of or, Initially, I yeah. was. I was a little bit like, oh, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Heresy. Right. I, well, oh, how could it? How could it be? But um, I took the course, recovery coaching here in Manhattan, and it really was eye-opening. I thought, let me be open. That was one of the things the first, my first sponsor ever taught me was just be open. Um, and so I've learned how to be really open without judgment. Mm-hmm. And I, I took the course apprehensive and was very enlightened by the two women teaching the course and, and, and my classmates, you know, and here are these beautiful people all trying to better themselves in any faucet possible. And mm-hmm. in AA, one of the only, re- the only requirement we have is a desire mm-hmm. to stop drinking. So what if you had a desire to remain sober? What if you had a desire just to stop weed? What if you had a desire just to be a better person? Mm-hmm. Does that mean there's no venue for you mm-hmm. if substances are involved? Right. And what are the different pathways there? And I thought, how judgmental of me to think that AA was the only way. Mm-hmm. That makes absolute sense. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's how it happened. Yep. And how? And what was the course like? What, is it months, years? No, oh, it's weeks. Weeks, okay. And, yep, it's weeks. So it's one's like, hmm, that doesn't sound very interesting. That doesn't sound like you know what you're doing. Well, you either have a talent or a knack for yeah. mm-hmm. passion in life, or mm-hmm. you should find something else to do. And only you can be the judge of that. Are you mm-hmm. successful at your trade? Are you successful? You know, Andre Agassi, I mean, he was an amazing tennis player, but he didn't want to be. I don't know if you've ever followed interviews with him. Mm-hmm. You know, and I read his book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there's, yeah. there's so many things you have to ask yourself. Is this what I want to be doing? Does this fulfill me? You know, I was a former um, model and I was modeling through my pregnancies and I really, and I was sober during those times and I didn't really want to be modeling, but I just didn't know what else I could mm-hmm. do. And, um, and so slowly I was friends with an attorney who introduced me to an addiction psychologist and he kind of took me a forensic psychologist. He took me under his wing and really saw my talent and believed in me. And, um, you know, my amazing boyfriend, of course, you know, saw my talent and he just said, wow, you're really talented. And I thought, oh, he's just saying that. But, you know, when other people started chiming in, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, okay. And then it just takes one person, one person to believe in you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that you've actually helped or someone that's going to sign up. Not not just that, but I mean, to even for you to be thinking, wait, am I worth something in this world? Because remember, I'm an addict and an alcoholic. Right. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I, I didn't think I was of worth other than my, because as a model, I was only valued for what I could look like. Mm Right. Sure, you have to be intelligent and know how to pose and be a successful businesswoman to be super successful, which I was not. I was an addict when I was modeling. So um, I, you know, I didn't know that I, I knew I was smart, but I didn't think anybody else would ever take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And so when I had other people valuing what I said, not what I wore or what I, you know, looked like. I mean, granted, I like to present well. I right. love fashion. I'm not going to not take care of myself (laughs) (laughs) to prove a point, (laughs) prove a point as much as some people would say, Oh, they're only in her office because of what she looks like. It's like, well, that's, that's fine if it gets you in the office. But then when you sit down, there's a reason you keep coming back and it's not just because you like what I'm wearing. Yeah. So um, when they, when they teach you to be a recovery coach, is it a process like taking someone through the steps or is it a totally different way of working through it? Or is it, just sort of open-ended and you just sort of have to let the client lead? Uh, well, yeah, great question. It's, it's a dance. 
Um, so I got some additional um, instruction and coaching through the Bending Mentor Coach Program, which is what a psychologist in the rooms of AA, who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. said, Tosh, go do it this way. Get additional backing. And it was great. That was a two-year program. The Bendy Mentor Program. Ben, B-E-N, Dean, D-E-A-N, Mentor Coach Program. Okay. Oh, Ben Dean. Ben Okay. Got it. And... It was a great program. Um, all of them were PhDs, basically, or MSWs teaching, really qualified individuals. We would have guest lecturers from Harvard all the time. And just the way you dance with somebody, can you hold your space mm-hmm. and a space for them to say what they need to say? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, because I was saying before, I'm on the front lines of addiction every day. Mm-hmm. And someone just needs to vent. Someone isn't going to do the work I had thought we could accomplish that day. That's yeah. fine. I am not, it's not on my agenda. Mm-hmm. I follow their, where they are and I guide them where they need to go. Maybe sometimes they don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And, and are the people using still? Are most of your clients like coming in still using, trying to quit? Just Yeah, I think that's about right. I think a lot of people come in and I call myself the last stop. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So they've probably been to AA and it didn't work. Oh, oh, yes. And they're like, I I don't want to go back. I can't do this. Yes, you nailed it. I I think that there's this this gray zone hovering around AA, if you will, in cyberspace, in in Manhattan, in every city around. I know that Manhattan is very blessed to have amazing AA meetings. I'm benefiting from them. Yeah, yeah. But the rest, I mean, unless you're in a metropolis, I don't feel you're going to get great recovery that is here. You'll get good recovery depending mm-hmm. on, you know, who's in the meetings and ha- who has the willingness to want to work it, of course. But if you ha- are dancing around mediocrity in meetings, if you will, you kind of go, well, this sucks. Mm-hmm. What's the point? Might as well just keep using. Mm-hmm. I can't grab on yeah. to what I really want. Um, and they're, they're holding on to so much judgment of themselves. Right. And so a, a recovery coach is someone who can hold a safe space mm-hmm. for someone dancing around the idea. Should I stop? Should I not? Mm. If I try AA, how do I really make it work? How do I look or listen for a sponsor? What are the step, 12 steps all about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do I find a good therapist? If yeah. I'm getting a divorce, how do I represent myself to an attorney? Wow. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many things. And so I get a lot of professionals mm. who are, do not want to be outed in AA. Yeah. A lot of high powered professionals who are just like, you know what? I'd rather do this one-on-one with someone who's been, who's, who's where I would like to be, but mm. I'm not sure if I'm ready to commit to, um, you know, being brutally honest as mm-hmm. AA would put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I create a, a program for them based on how they want to recover. Mm-hmm. And, and is your ultimate goal to get people back into AA permanently or back into... If, if they are willing yeah. to try a meeting, mm-hmm. that is 100% a great idea. So can, can I, I'm going to jump in there. I have a couple of questions. I, uh, I'm not sure, and I don't expect you to know, and I, and I didn't go over this with you. The three of us come at our recovery from th- in three different ways. Yeah. Uh, Jeff and Matt currently go to meetings. Yep. I've been to three in 18 years, yep. and those are all in the past, past year. Mm-hmm. I, I call it three in 18, you know, my, my 90 and 90. Um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, when we talk about... Um, any of the A's, uh, I'm the least knowledgeable. And, uh, so, uh, you mentioned things like, um, MAT as part of your, your knowledge base, Mm -hmm. I guess, as part of what you do, uh, does smart recovery come into play? Does, um, harm reduction come into play? All of it. Okay. So, so it's not, um, Okay, so recovery, your your uh, practice isn't necessarily solely twelve step based. Absolutely not. Okay, it's responsive. Um, to, it's res- to what what the right solution is for the person. I, I, I'm Which, not. I'm not. I'm not in charge of their recovery. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am merely presenting different pathways okay. for them 
to choose what works. And it is what we call fielding research, if you will. Okay. They're going to feel what it feels like to do some harm reduction in my care. Gotcha. What did it feel like to do that? Did that, okay. is that what you want to be doing? And then we get really honest and we'll say, well, I liked it this time, but I, and we do, we, we take notes, we journal, we read, we find lecturers. I follow amazing philosophers online. Mm. Um, you know, I get them turned on to the more intellectual side of what works for them mm-hmm. and encompass it with their feelings. Mm-hmm. Because what we do is we want to numb our feelings or we want to numb right. the pain of a difficult boss, mm-hmm. a challenging friend, uh, a child who's maybe going through substance abuse. And there's so many things. Smart recovery works if someone wants it to work. Mm-hmm. You know, harm reduction will work. You know, but there are levels of intense alcoholism oh. that that really need more serious treatment sure. than harm reduction or smart recovery. And those cases, if they if they come to me, I am always usually working in tandem with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. There's two primarily in Manhattan that I work with. Um, and we team together and we're very effective together. Mm. Um, and then just last week I had to refer someone to a, a rehab in Connecticut, you know. So, um, and then when they come out, we'll begin again, Interesting. you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, can we back up a little bit and get to your story? Yeah. Mm, sure. Um, and uh, what what got you to recovery and mm. yeah, and sparked your incredible <laughs> passion for recovery? <laughs> 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 Thank you. Oh wow. Um, let's see. How far back do we want to go? Well, um, I guess. It, as much as you think is pertinent and are are comfortable sharing, um, you know, p- part of me is, well, all of me is curious, um, at least to touch on maybe the, the family connection, you know, is, is there a, a genetic component mm, to your... Great, great question. Okay. And that is, that is such a valid... Um, yes, I do believe there is a genetic predisposition. Um, there was my uncle who passed away at age 43, um, he was in Montana, and he was such an amazing, charismatic, wonderful man. I was nine when he passed. Mm. And his his uh, grandparents, his parents were not alcoholic, but his grandparents were both. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a Norwegian and Swedish bloodline. And um, my mother's side, it's not as direct, but it's there mm-hmm. a little bit back. I can't imagine one family dynamics in the whole world that doesn't have it somewhere. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, True. So that being said, you know, does that mean that because I have the gene, my kids are going to have it? Mm-hmm. You know, I can't answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can do is maybe create the best and safest environment for, for them to not feel judged mm-hmm. at no matter, at, at, at any turn in their life. I always want them to pause and think about how did that make me feel? to be around my friends who were drinking or smoking mm-hmm. weed. How did that, is that what I really want to be doing? Mm-hmm. And they can know they can come home and talk to me about it. And then I'll say, what are you going to do? How do you want to handle that? Do you want to take a day to think about that? You want to take a week? Okay, why don't you do that? Um, you know, because to be tough on somebody because I'm afraid, if I let my fear of my genetic predisposition rule my parenting, I'm losing right there. That's a terrific point. I mean, because a huge part of this, is, you know, is is we all have children as well, and um, you know, there's always a certain amount of trepidation. It's just how we manage it, right? So that's a terrific point. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah I, I remember learning a while back. It's not the decisions in life that matter; it's how we choose to live with them. Yeah. Um, so my story, um, yeah, I do believe there was a genetic predisposition. I had a beautiful childhood. I had loving parents. Eh, my mother. I love my mother, you know, but she was um, a mom who raised three girls and my father worked and it was challenging. I don't think three girls is easy. I have two boys and a girl and my boys are much easier. I love you, Sarah. Uh, (laughs) You know, they're just they're just on it. You know, they're just with it. They can they can react in a different way than a boy will. Um, And so. uh, you know, my parents, you know, I grew, I didn't, I, there, I, there's an affluent world that I'm in now here in Manhattan, but I didn't grow up that way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what social classes were. 
I didn't know what, you know, name brands were. Um, I think I remember I was in sixth grade the first time someone said, oh, that's a guest pair of jeans and they're $60. This is back in like 1988. And I was like, wow, $60 for a pair of jeans. That's expensive. Like who would ever (laughs) pay for that? You know, that idea that you would pay more because of a name on a label was astonishing to me. And here I ended up this fashion model. Um, so in my teenage years, I played with weed, but I didn't really like it. It was too boring for me. I, wa- I liked it fast and quick. I was an instant gratification kind of girl without the technology back then. We didn't have cell phones till I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I probably got drunk a handful of times, but I didn't really enjoy that. I could never hold my liquor. I'm a lightweight drunk. Um, and so when around age 19, I mean, I started kind of playing with my mom Xanax without her realizing it when Xanax was hitting the market in the early 90s. And... I mean, that's a powerful drug. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it a pain? I don't even know what Xanax is. Is it a painkiller? One of us here knows. Anti-anxiety medication. (laughs) Uh, It is extraordinarily addictive. Colonopin has now replaced it as the newer version. Mm -hmm. Um, Does it like mellow you out and make you feel It's like Valium. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. um, Cool. Yeah. And if you drink on it, you're basically in a comatose state. Instant blackout. Insta blackout. And so at age 19, I ended up in the modeling industry and was surrounded by designer drugs like ecstasy and Mm. um, cocaine. And those drugs are very highly addictive. Yeah. Um, They say 90% of addictions begin in the teenage years. And if you pause and think about that, I want to do a little bit of um, informing for the audience now, for parents in particular. I work with Partnership for Drug Free Kids, and one of one of the statistics is that you have a window from age 10 to 20 where the more vigilant you can be in preventing your children from becoming addicted to a substance, let's say they make it to age 20, like I was almost 19, right. 20. My parents did a good job holding the line as best they could. I was very sneaky. They had no idea how much I was really doing. Mm-hmm. And they know that now. I've made my amends with them. Okay. But then I did become a full-blown addict at age 19, 20, And I was off to the races until I became pregnant with my first child at age 26. Mm -hmm. So, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did you realize at 19 or 20 that you were a full-blown addict? Right. Okay. And so my point with the ages 10 to 20 is that if you can push that out, the chances of recovery are far greater for that individual, that child that's just reaching somewhat of adulthood. Versus a child or teenager who gets addicted at age 16, at age 14, yeah. or at age 12. And so your brain isn't done developing until age 25. And if you just pause and think about how long you could prevent your brain from becoming hardwired with a substance, such as heroin or opiates mm-hmm. or cocaine or molly or ecstasy and all those things, or being hardwired with amphetamines, mm-hmm. meth, um, you know, that's the great service that you can do as a parent. So, so the strategy is to, if you can get them past 20, the chances yep. that they'll get into recovery, recovery are, are far greater than wow. those 16 year old. Wow. So don't let them go away to college till wow. after they're 20. Okay. I, seriously. <laughs> no, that's No, this is, this is useful. <laughs> we're all, we're all listening. Well, I know we're all like, okay, I'm thinking How this through. I just have a 10 year old, right? Yeah. And I have a 12 year old. I know yeah. you have a 12. Wow. Be vigilant. Uh, be there, be yeah. there, hold the line. Lock no, down. No, it's, no, it's not okay for them to drink and use in your home. Yeah. No, no, it's not okay for them to smoke weed. Right. No, it's not okay for them to become addicted to a substance just because yeah. a psychiatrist is prescribing it. Yeah. I mean, get a bunch of opinions if you're gonna have, if your child needs medication. I'm all for medication when it's appropriate. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. But not because of an internist prescribing mm-hmm. Adderall. That's a whole nother ball game we can go into another day. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's good. Another okay. ball so of wax. I could I keep going, but Th- this so is good advice. I, I, I got very addicted at age nineteen, twenty. No, I did not know I was addicted. I was a party girl. I was having fun. I thought it was all fabulous and great. And so one would ask, "Oh, well, if you had this great childhood and you were raised in the Midwest, and you know um, you had parents who loved you and your present." Like, why reach for the drugs? Right. And really, that gene lying in your body line somewhere saying, hey, you got to get high, you got to get drunk. Um, no, of course, there are other factors that play into it. And I struggled with a learning disability growing up. 
that um, made me feel less than. Mm -hmm. It made me feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. Shame is something I've learned is a toxic emotion, whereas guilt is not. Guilt motivates us to call our mothers. Shame prevents us from calling. Yeah. Mm. Well said. So um, I became uh, very addicted, um, and I enjoyed the escape. I was very good at... um, were you like? Were you living in New York doing the modeling thing? Like, I was like I was, the, what I picture in our in our. Yeah. You know, that's where you are. All the models are all using drugs. You have to. You can't eat. You're all smoking tons of cigarettes. Yeah. You have to stay thin. You have to do tons <laughs> of blow. You're going to killer parties. You named it. And going on the runway, and it's just this lifestyle. Just that's a rolling, right. rolling right. kind of thing. Cycle. That's, yeah. that's exactly it. And, okay. You know, I'm your classic. You know. You know, naive. Uh, Midwest girl who comes to New York City yeah. and crashes and burns. Yeah. And the agencies, much as I loved working with Ford, yeah. I'm not going to say them in particular, but any agency yeah. in this industry, you know, wants you to continue to work. Sure. It doesn't matter. You know, they say they have scales to prevent anorexia in the agencies now. Um, I don't know if anybody steps on them. Yeah. But they're there. Is it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so do you think they do anymore? Just as a sidebar, I wonder if that's, if that's gotten better or if the modeling industry doesn't the, care anymore. No, no, no. There was some heat cracking down like yeah, last but. year about having more scales and getting healthier girls, not so toxic on mm. the runway. But I haven't really seen much of a change. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I guess when people stop responding to it. But that's the industry, isn't it? It's just like there's a new crop of girls every whatever, and this is just how it works. We were called clothes hanger girls because we're a dime a dozen yeah. Tall, skinny, blondes. It's like, oh, everybody looks the same kind of thing. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. Which has got to be, in a sense, rewarding, but kind of dehumanizing. And I think you touched oh, on totally. it when you talked about yeah. it's such a, really, when you all you have is your aesthetic yeah. value. Yeah. And they don't want to hear from yeah. a model on a set. There's right. a non, these are non-speaking roles. There's right. No, there's, there's no acting going on. Like, like, did you just comment, model? I don't want to hear from you. Right. The only time they want the model to engage with them is when they want more energy or life or a different pose. And yeah. the photographer has to, like, have a relationship with the model. And, you know. God, that's you know, crazy. So I was happy to be done with it. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because but everybody thinks it's this super glamorous lifestyle of going to killer parties and doing killer drugs, right? And so in, in some ways it was that. Yeah, it was right? for a time. And then what happens is the substances for me, because I was such an addict, became yeah. the, the driving force of why I was going out. And then yeah. it got to the point where I didn't even want to go out anymore. Mm-hmm. I would go, but I would want to come back so I could be in control of my using and my drugs mm-hmm. safely in my home. And it was easier that way. I didn't have to worry about sharing my drugs. I right. didn't have, I didn't have, and and I, I used to think of myself as only an addict. I didn't ever used to think of myself as an all alcoholic and many people don't like labels and I respect that. But for me and the way my recovery works is I do use those titles. Um, and so, um, I relapsed several times. I I would stop one substance. I went from, you know, ecstasy pills to ecstasy, to cocaine, to alcohol. And cause you, you, you get, you ride your way through one substance Mm -hmm. and it can never be enough. And then you want to try something else, and then you get the high off the next substance for a year or two. And then you ride that wave, and then you go to the next one. And then I went to alcohol. And then I tried to stop before I even tried AA or anything for, like, years. From probably, like, age 24 to 26, I tried to stop on my own without anyone knowing it. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really hard because I would have, like... I would be like, I deleted my dealer's number. Mm -hmm. You know, I went through all those phases. And then... I would just drink. And after two drinks, I would always call my dealer because I had mm-hmm. never memorized them. We didn't have contact. <laughs> <laughs> Deleting the dealer's number did not do it. Oh, I know but your number. That yeah. logic absolutely checks out. <laughs> to the addict mind, I would have thought that was genius. I know. You know. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, That's so hilarious. yeah. I just never. And then I remember one time. I was seeing this therapist, and she was great. Uh, what a great therapist, but she enabled a lot of my using. But that's fine. I wasn't ready to hear a message then anyways. Mm-hmm. I think she probably knew that. And um, she said, I said, my dealer keeps calling me. I'm trying to be so good. And she goes, that's why we call them pushers, Natasha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not pullers. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So, um, yeah, I couldn't ever shake the dealer. And 
I noticed when I didn't drink alcohol, I didn't have a temptation to call my dealer. You know, when you've abused cocaine for so long, mm -hmm. you never really want to feel that come down. Mm -hmm. It's the worst feeling sure. in the entire world. Yeah. And it goes on for hours, if not a day or more. And um, I never wanted that feeling. And it just, the come downs got worse and worse and worse. So I didn't want cocaine, but I didn't, I finally put the connectors together that alcohol was my conductor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It led me to other substances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Isn't that amazing? I mean, it wasn't until I stopped doing all the other drugs I was doing that I that I realized, like, I thought I was done. Like, yeah. I stopped doing drugs. Right. And then it took me a while to, like, oh, yeah. I'm also an alcoholic. Then <laughs> <laughs> right. it. Pills, which right. to me is the epidemic of going on in this nation. Yeah. It is at epidemic proportions. It is now the number one killer of our teens, accidental wow. overdose with medication. Prescribed medication or stolen medication, Adderall, Xanax, Klonopin, Ecstasy, Vicodin, mm. Percocet, Valium, Jesus. you name it. Mix it all together, put some alcohol with it, and boom, you're gone. Oh, my God. These are kids who aren't even addicts yet that right. are doing this. And so yeah. what I did is I thought, oh, because I had become a mother at age 26, 27, and I stopped for my un the safety of my unborn child. Mm -hmm. And then when he was four months, my desire to drink and use grew so strong. Mm -hmm. I thought I got this. It was a phase. I was just a party girl. Now I'm a mother. This will never happen. But I thought, well, I really can't be drunk with my son. So what if I just use pills? Yeah. Wow. yeah. I thought, ding, ding, ding. I'm so smart. Yeah. I'm so smart. I can now just use pills and everything's great. And so I had my little Limoges boxes and I thought I was so fancy with all of my you know, because, you know, if it looks nice, how can it be bad for you? Right. right. We used to have this saying when, with my friends when we used, if it feels good, it must be good for you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I got a T-shirt that says that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyway, so um, now I'll say, how do you know if a behavior or substance is an issue? Is Am I a harm to myself or others while mm -hmm. I'm on it? And that should be your guiding force, yeah. you know. Um, so I was on pills for a while until I realized, like, I went to AA meetings and they said, please don't share if you've had any self-prescribed mood enhancers. And I'm like, oh, wow. that's a self-prescribed mood yeah, enhancer. Yeah, what is that? I don't, well, that's me choosing to take medication yeah. self-prescribed, you know? Oh, right, right, okay. Right. So I would, I was voluntarily taking my own pills that I was getting, whether I got them through a, um, a doctor or not, I'm still abusing the medication sure. that is, I'm putting my hand in quotation marks, <clears throat> prescribed. Right. You know, I can't tell you how many doctors recklessly prescribe benzodiazepines, mm. which are all the drugs I've been talking about. Mm. Yes. Valium, Xanax. To, it's just horrendous. Um, it's pretty easy to go in and get a prescription. Oh, it's incredibly easy. Yeah, they want to write these things. And my, my experience in treatment centers, Yeah. it's just... You know, there was an eight-year gap between the first one I went to and the second. Yeah. And the first one, it was alcohol and cocaine. And, you know, this was 2002 and crack mm -hmm. cocaine. Yeah. And when I went back, it was All benzos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Benzos, benzos, benzos. Yeah. Wow. Everybody was a pillhead. Wow. And the first question was, how much do you pay for this size pill? You know, it's just, it was crazy. <laughs> but I digress. No, no that's, that's no, right on. That's, that's exactly yeah. what the epidemic proportions of all, you know, everything I see going on. Personally and professionally, it is the pills. Yeah. The pills. Mm -hmm. wow. and, and that's, you know, I recently promoted a film called Out of Reach, where this young man from Texas, Cyrus Stowe, um, his father was an addict um, from pills. And so he did Partnership for Drug Free Kids, asked for people, teenagers to submit documentaries. And his one oh, was wow. very, very powerful. I can forward you guys the links. Absolutely. Outstanding, and now partnership for drug-free kids. So we followed what was going on in a public school in Texas, and the pills were everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, God. Everywhere, and that's my experience. Even people who don't know what I do for a living, and and you know, offer me pills when I'm sitting yeah. down at a dinner. You know, wow. and it's like, no, no, thank you. I'm good. Wow. Oh my God, that's crazy. Well, I was just hearing some, and this this is horrifying, but it's like I would totally do it if I was in high school, where you get together and you have pill night and everyone brings their pills and they just mix yeah. them up and everyone just it's takes called, whatever. Yeah, it's called pharma parties. <laughs> pharma, I mean, and I laugh at that, but I'm like, yeah, that, I'd do that. Oh, yeah. I sure. would do that. I was I kind of did too. Pills. It right. was awful back in the 90s. That's I didn't, awful. we didn't really do it to the extent that they're doing sure. it now. I was yeah. in the Midwest, but. I was certainly dabbling in, in severe behavior that 
you know, could, I have no, no right to be sitting here right now, yeah. but my heart is still beating and I'm still breathing. And That's good. So, so your last pill, you were in yeah. AA doing pills and you're like, I don't know if I can do these pills anymore. Uh, so is I that think, what happened? Okay. What happened is I went to a meeting in Soho and I think I was three weeks dabbling in the rooms and I, I actually, this is how AA works, you know, um, is that it presents an opportunity to meet people who are on the same journey or mission or desires as you. And so I actually ran into someone I used with in the rooms and I couldn't believe she was sober. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a bigger mess than you bigger. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> we were pretty messed up Yeah. and she was sober two years and I couldn't believe it. I was staring at her. She was younger than me. And I just thought, there's no way she's sober. First of all, I didn't think anybody in the rooms were really sober. I thought it was all a scam. That's hilarious. Everybody was using on the side anyway. Yeah. It was just like, you know, someplace to go. Yeah. But then she came over to me after the meeting, and I thought, I don't know what I thought. My insecurities were raging. My blood was like, oh, crap, I'm going to be found out. I don't know what, what all those feelings were. But she came over to me, and there was something about her. There was just something about her that was peaceful, mm-hmm. she, calm earnest Natasha how are you she hugged me I said oh my god I couldn't believe you were actually sober I never believed it and she says yeah two years and I you know she had gone to a rehab which I never did mm-hmm. and she, she just said I said yeah and I explained what was going on in my life and she said you should come back tomorrow and I said do you really have to not take pills and she said yeah and I said oh I don't know if I could do that she says well you don't have to she goes, whatever you want to do. And I mean, that right there mm-hmm. of her not telling me what to do, because mm-hmm. if you tell me what to do, at least not now, but then, right. I'm just going to do the opposite anyway. Right, so exactly. It was, like, it was so easy to figure an addict out. Yeah. Don't do this. Then they're going to do what you want. Um, I went home and I popped three 10 milligram Valium that night, I remember. And I thought, okay, this is it. And I cracked up four years. That was um, April 8th of 2004. Hmm. And um, I, be- yep, I became pregnant during those t- uh, twice during those four years and nursed my beautiful, healthy babies. And my daughter was 16 months old and my desire to be thin mm. after having given birth to three children, mm-hmm. my desire to just numb my pain, my desire to not, I, had, I wasn't connected in AA. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked a program my way, which mm-hmm. is at least in AA, is not something we recommend, but mm-hmm. you're welcome to have do your own research. Yeah, take a shot at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I did that, and um, sure enough, I convinced myself I wasn't an alcoholic. Uh, it took me three months wow. because I wasn't going to just react and drink. Mm-hmm. I was what we call romancing the drink. So mm-hmm. I had to think my way through to a drink. So it took me three months from, I think, December to March um, and then I decided to pick up and I decided to do it by announcing it to a group of people wow. and, and they all toasted me out of the program with wow. a very expensive bottle of wine. Oh, so it was yeah. grandiose. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. That's fascinating. See, look what I've done. Yeah. I've been great for four years. I'm good now. I got this. That illusion that I've got this is what every alcoholic yeah. addict is. They want to master that I've got right. this. Don't yeah. you? You want to win. Yeah, I'm like good. you've graduated back to being able to drink. Yeah, it's, amen. Yeah. Exactly where I was, and so because I never really liked wine, anyways, <laughs> I I took a sip and I didn't even have any more that night. I hmm. thought, you see, so easy. You see, yeah. I don't even. I want, knew it. Yeah. I'm not. You see, I'm not an alcoholic, and here's the insidiousness of it. From March until August fourth of two thousand and eight was about six months where I played with. This game, every sip of alcohol I took was to prove to myself that I was not an alcoholic. Let me say that again. Every sip of alcohol I took was to prove to myself that I was not an alcoholic. Mm. So it's kind of like I I giggle when I say that now because that's so silly. It's it's like (laughs) some kind of psychotic compulsion or this weird (laughs) discipline, like sadomasochistic discipline. Right? Because we've all been addicts and we've all been in weird. Who does that? 
<laughs> yeah. It's almost the same logic, you know, that the, the 1950s father would say, take this whole box of cigars in the attic and smoke them all. And you'll never smoke a cigar. <laughs> no, it just doesn't. There's a logical, there's a flaw. Yeah. Uh, Oi. Yeah. And also, the first week or two of me starting to drink again, you know, that lasted a night. And then the next day, because I was drinking again, might as well drink. So mm. my, my drink of choice was vodka. I went down, I went, I wanted to go down to a restaurant and order a mojito or a dirty martini. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to the corner restaurant and I, I wanted to order a real, real drink. And they said, oh, we don't serve liquor here, just beer and wine. I was so pissed. I ran to the liquor store and got two kettle ones. <laughs> <laughs> and then sure enough, you know, I called my dealer mm. and wow. we are off to the races again. Wow. And, yeah. So that being said. Where's your dealer four years later? He's like, oh, hey, what's up? I've been waiting for you to call. What's up? How are you? You hung out for a while. What's going on? Four Um, years later, he's still dealing. That's a pretty good dealer. If you can make it that long. Price is going up. We got the the new shit. It's the best. (laughs) Pardon my language. No. It's it's the real stuff. Right. It's clean. It's not cut. You know, Uh, a bunch of malarkey. hmm. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Malarkey. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so then on August eighth um, of two thousand and uh, August fifth of two thousand, August fourth of two thousand and eight was my last drink or drug. August fifth is my sobriety date. And for now, for today, for yeah. today, for today, let's say the longest record is twenty four hours. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I, all I have to do is make it till midnight tonight without being a harm to myself or others, and I'm. I think I accomplished that today. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's good. That's a that's a being a harm to oneself or others. I think is a really interesting. It's so it's such a truism. Yeah. Yet I could see myself if I was in the throes of addiction, playing with that rationalizing what exactly. constitutes harm exactly yeah. because I was a big a big pothead. Mm. Yeah, and that was a really easy one yeah. to be like, hey, I'm not hurting anybody, yeah. bro. I'm just watching cartoons. Yeah, yeah bro. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. Remy Kaminsky is an amazing psychiatrist that I've had the privilege to work with here in Manhattan. He was the head of New York State Psychiatry for 14 years. He's a professor of neuropsychology at Columbia University, and his list of credentials go on and on. He's an amazing gentleman. And one time, because we work with a lot of stoners, and, you know, I could never articulate to the parents why I'm so against weed, you know, because it's getting legalized Mm -hmm. and it's getting medical marijuana and what's the big deal and whatever. And I, and I would say, you know, I wish I could ever give a great analogy. And Dr. Kaminsky nailed it. He said, um, if, let's take your body. You know how a virus will affect you like the flu or pneumonia or cold and your white blood cells will fight it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, marijuana is like AIDS. It goes right in and attacks your motivation system, whereas mm-hmm. AIDS attacks your white blood cells because you then can't fight anything Mm -hmm. and you die Mm -hmm. from the viruses so marijuana takes your motivation in life away from you Mm -hmm. and it's such an an accurate analogy yeah Uh, absolutely it it does it so subtly you don't even know your life is out of your reach slowly you go from coaching a basketball team or being the star player in the middle of high school or middle school and by the end of high school or the end of college you're barely hanging on making it to class or you can't even show up and you're mm-hmm. lying and you're and you're not maybe stealing you're not gateway drugs to other things yeah. yet mm-hmm. but who are you mm-hmm. what happened right. to you and you don't even know what happened because you know you're you're gravitating towards people who are condoning your behavior mm-hmm. yeah. saying it's okay man it's all right yeah you know look at bob marley you know what i mean <laughs> like, it's like he's love and peace he's a he's a beautiful man <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no, it's uh, you, you make a compelling argument there. <laughs> <laughs> the Marley uh, yes. angle, I'd never really fully explored. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, listen, that doesn't. And, and also, to, you know, to someone who's accomplished in life, who's 50 plus or 40 something years old, and they've become successful in their mm-hmm. own right. Maybe they have their own company. They have a, a beautiful family. They're happy in life. If they want to smoke a doobie every now and then, good for them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't have that genetic predisposition. Right. I'm not here to judge their behavior. No. Yeah, Let me absolutely. just clarify that. Yeah. I'm really primarily focusing on the young adults right. mm-hmm. and those who have the addictive behavior with other substances mm-hmm. and then think they can smoke weed and they're cool. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry, you don't, you don't fall in that category. You just don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I try, I've tried. I've tried to do marijuana maintenance. Sure. It doesn't work. Yeah, I tried really hard to do it because it's, it's, you can make it. I mean, you can make it work for a while. For a while being the operative there. And, uh, the and I think you come off, well, man. The yeah. motivation eventually. Yeah. I was just telling some, someone today when uh, Jeff has, has longer been abstinent from alcohol than I have. Correct. And when I met him, yeah. and I think it's fair to say, you just mentioned it, yeah. he was doing what he was calling marijuana maintenance, yeah. which I didn't realize was a thing. Yeah. And so like for the first two years I knew yeah. you, you were smoking. I was trying my marijuana. best. I, I was completely absent from to everything. To be high but I as possible. My, my sense was that because you were s- s- abstinent from alcohol, yeah. everything was all good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just fascinating to Isn't me that, that, yeah. that I've only learned in the past couple of years just the nuance of all this. And yeah. I mean, it's not that much nuance. It's kind of like yeah. a sledgehammer, but... Yeah. Um, Subtle. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, it, it was just sort of... Weed, weed is always the last thing to go for my clients. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, that doesn't surprise me <laughs> in the least. Well, it's, it's becoming culturally way more acceptable. It's, it's, yeah. And truly, if like we all marketed alcohol for a long time, and... Which if I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. In sobriety, we all marketed. We're all advertising. advertising and we all marketed alcohol and spirits. Is that or, right? Yeah. yeah. And spirits. For our yeah. entire careers. Right. How um, about that? I still, I still work on spirits. As do I. Yeah, um, it's funny. We both do. But uh, yeah, which, you, which is a whole nother yeah. ethical. Yeah, like, yeah. But it's, but like. We've talked me, about that on the podcast before. Addict, we have a whole episode about if it. If you aren't an addict, you're just a normie. I'd much rather go out with people smoking weed. Than drinking, if it you know what I'm saying. How they hold their weed and yeah. hold their liquor, exactly. Right? exactly. That's Because I think yeah. liquor is just so much more. It's just a weirder thing. But having said all that, if you're a predisposed like us, yeah. you can't do it. Anything that alters my consciousness, anything yeah. that offers Total. any modicum well, of escape, problem, that's, problem, that's a problem. Whole another conversation. You, yeah. could, I could do a whole year's worth of show on a level of consciousness. <laughs> right. Yeah. That yeah. A level of con- what kind of level is consciousness? As I've gotten more and more sober and and more um, spiritual, if you will, because yeah. I, I do see myself as a woman of spiritual growth and enlightenment and awareness and what's going on in my feelings and how I operate and maneuver with my clients, with my children, with those around me is what level do you want to play at in life? Mm. Yeah. And if you're putting a substance in your brain, your brain was not made with that substance, and unless you really need it then you're going to plateau and you're going to level off. And if that's how you want to ride your life, then that works for you. Great. But there is a whole, there's so many dimensions to life and there's so many ways to get to them and be enlightened. It's so amazing when you can push your intellectual abilities Mm -hmm. to a whole different world where you can find inner peace at any moment, no matter how triggered you may be. Do you, is this how you talk to your clients? Do you lay this out for them as yes. possible? Yes, those, those that I can. I yeah. said to Chris prior to the show, I can't always speak like I just did to yeah. all of my clients. Sure. Yeah. sure. It would be a waste of energy or money sure. or time and all of that. But I, I, like you said, I dance. I meet them where they're at. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. They come in. They're high. Not going to get much accomplished, but mm-hmm. they did show up. So I'm going to be there for them. You know. But does that mean I meet with someone high every time? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's cool. So different layers present themselves. I've done years of work with some, and now we get to very spiritual ground, sacred ground, and they they wouldn't define themselves as any religion, or but they are certainly at another conscious awareness of the way they operate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's funny because I was going to ask you. You had mentioned giving people the intellectual heft. It just—it's funny because I think when you first get sober. I wanted to know a lot more intellectual stuff about addiction than I care to now. It doesn't matter anymore. I wasn't as accepting of it. You know, and a lot of people get in and try to intellectualize AA, right? Well, I wanted to think my way out of it. Yeah, exactly. Surely I'm more intelligent than the bulk of the people. who. When it says, rarely have we seen a person fail, I was like, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I I am rare. It's on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's that... Wonderful delusion. Yeah. Um, and and then I think you're, but I think what you're really talking about is is bringing some spiritual heft to this thing, right? That's what it sounds like. You're trying to give people just the spiritual side of it ultimately is where you're taking them. And personal maximization, you know, really yeah. under, understanding. That's better said because if I Ooh, use that's nice. spirituality, the maximum, what did you say? Maximum personalization? Uh, uh, personal maximization, you know, yeah. meaning I, that you, you can take it. plateau out wherever you 
want, yeah. how whatever, as you said, whatever yeah. level and, you want to play and, at. And then here's what's so beautiful about coaching or therapy or any self-work is that you take the present moment and you take what things are happening, whether they're transgressions or positives, and then maybe you ride that and they're like, no, I'm good for a while. Okay. And then something really happens. Someone passes away. You get a promotion. You're getting a divorce. Your sister is, is an addict. Um, mm-hmm. Things happen that push and move you to, I think life is always looking for you to optimize yourself. And so if you can be, and they're always happening around you. It's just, are you ready to see it? Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to grow the way I am now, even a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, and years before that, I wasn't ready. And so if you can maximize and optimize your, your capabilities as a mother, as mm-hmm. a, as a friend, as a partner, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The ripple effect, positivity and the light has um, in, in one person's life, just like the darkness has a negative, a, a downward toe. Um, and the only way to get rid of that darkness is with the light. Yeah. So yes, to your answer, I am trying to enlighten people That's at good. their pace. Natasha, I'm going to say that sounds like a beautifully perfect place to end mm. this. Um, I'm glad you brought it back to light. For a minute there, I thought you were going to end on darkness. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> always leave them with light. Chris. What a happy ending! But uh, you know, honestly, this is this has been um, just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's do it again. Th- yeah, I feel like absolutely. We could do another Thoroughly one. enjoyed it, and uh, just fascinating. I mean, I took so many notes. I'm going to have to uh, do some uh, self education and do some research here. Um, but we're naturally curious. Yeah. And. Uh, Reflect on it, and yeah. the answer will come. <laughs> All right. Ruminate. Um, yeah, and uh, the one thing I, I want to remind you is you, you mentioned the f- a film that you were going to send me a link oh, to, oh, uh, right. out, out of Reach. It's called Out of Reach yeah. with Cyrus Stowe okay. with, and Partnership for Drug-Free Kids right. um, produced it. They're producing another one that I'm going to be promoting in a few months here in Manhattan um, about why kids reach for Adderall, Xanax, and the benzodiazepines yeah. in the first place. Anxiety and um, depression, depression of course, will be right. at the forefront of that. All right. All right. Um, that was great. Yeah, so that was wonderful. Thank you so much yeah. um, for... Uh, yes, thank you. When I, it's funny because I think you probably see a lot of dark side every day, and to feel the right. positivity exactly. that you're given, I think, is awesome. Yes, you are on the front lines. Yeah. I am on the front lines, and I roll up my sleeves, and I bow down to you guys and everybody who is constantly trying to push this message out there because I think we need to stay uh, in media and and really push people. So thank you. Absolutely, and thank you. And we didn't even talk about, like, I mean, the, the notion, you're, you're clearly... Uh, you're familiar with the, the notion, this whole movement of recover out loud, and you're clearly mm-hmm. out and um, and on the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, well, I think we'll have to figure out how to talk to you again as soon as yeah. we can. Okay, but guys. that was I'll, good. Uh, I'll um yeah, I'll, I'll shoot you an email or something in uh, in the morning and let you know when this will be out, which probably in the afternoon. Great. Um, uh, Matthew, Jeff, Chris, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Natasha. All right, guys. Good night. Bye. All right, bye. Another clean and sober intervention.